amen, amen. I'm just going to get some water here real quick. Uh, grab this wall. It's got secret things behind here. All right, we are in Genesis chapter 50 this morning. Genesis chapter 50. Lots being said, I'd say in the last decade or two, about the environment and about recycling. And how many of y'all are pretty good at recycling? You know, you, you got your recycling bin and, and, and you make sure that, you know, that, that goes back so that materials can be reused and, and so forth. And uh, in the media and, and in culture, it's a high value, uh, the earth, protecting the earth and, and the problem of pollution, especially in our cities. I can't tell you, pollution is real. I, I remember going to Africa and driving through a, a city, kind of an urban center in Africa. And by the time we got on the other side of that city, so much smog had gotten into my lungs. I mean, I could, I could literally feel it. And uh, it's a real thing. But it's interesting, we, we kind of value things uh, sometimes in, we prioritize things too high and we forget to prioritize other things. And there's a pollution going on, an environmental problem going on, uh, not in earth, but in the human soul and in the human heart. Um, and that pollution, that, 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 that sense of, of problem and poison is really in the human heart when it comes to anger, when it comes to holding grudges. When it comes to retaliation, um, there's, a, there's a problem of anger and revenge and making sure that we right the wrongs that have been done to us. I, I remember uh, thinking about how ubiquitous this is, how pervasive this problem is. I, I remember one day, years ago, when we were living in Oklahoma, I got, got in my car in the morning and I was driving away, and the, or it was kind of the afternoon, I guess, and, and, the, and the mailman was going box to box, kind of putting the mail in the mailboxes, you know, out of his little, little Jeep thing. And I was, you know, and I, I thought, you know, I'm going to go ahead and pass him here, you know what I'm saying? Because he's and he was kind of in between. He had just left, a, and then he kind of went like that. And I was like, I'm going to pass him. And he got visibly angry. Like, I started to come around him, and he looked at me, and he punched it. He started racing me down the, down the neighborhood. And I went, oh, my gosh, I'm drag racing the mailman <laughs> in my neighborhood. And then he stopped real quick and backed up and went back to work. And I went, man, he's got issues, right? And, and we've got issues, and i got to tell you, I've had issues. And, 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 you know, you might have come to church today, maybe you have a little tiff and you're holding a grudge against one another. Or, and I'm hoping that this sermon can even help those situations. But also, I have to tell you that some of us have been genuinely abused in our past. Things have been said. And in our heart and in our fantasies and in our imagination, things that happened years ago, we're still hanging on to like a broken piece of glass. And we're imagining the destruction of our enemies. We're imagining the destruction of those who have hurt us. I want you to know that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And that as believers and as followers of Jesus, we are not to have a heart of revenge no matter what's happened to us. That we are to have the capacity to let these things go. 
that we, are to, that we are to seek God for healing if we need to be healed. And I recognize that in our culture and in our society that, again, I don't want to be insensitive to any harm that's been done to you in your past. But I do believe that God is bigger than any problem that's happened to us in the past. Amen? That he can bring healing to us. But even in our marriages or with our children, if we're holding little grudges, it's, it's time to get over that. It's time to let go. It's time to have a heart that's not seeking retaliation, even emotional. Many people talk about how Jesus calls us to physical nonviolence. I would say that Jesus calls us to emotional nonviolence. Some of us, the way we handle it is we're passive-aggressive. We attack without appearing to be attacking. We, we kind of throw signals or we push buttons that we shouldn't push. And we know it's wrong. But we're doing it quietly. Nobody can see it, but you know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. And Jesus has called us to a life of emotional non-retaliation, of emotional non-violence. Let us be peacemakers. And we ask ourselves, man, that's hard to do sometimes. I mean, it's really difficult to not be angry, to not seek retaliation, to not seek the destruction of people in our culture that do wrong things. Even when we watch the news, do we have a heart that's able to pray for people who are lost and not damn them to hell in our heart? Amen. How can we do that? How can we be people who are delivered from a spirit of revenge and retaliation? Transformed into people of peacemaking. When we come to Genesis 50, Joseph shows us how. Joseph becomes the ultimate example, and he, in his narrative, in his story, he delivers us from revenge. And let me tell you how, and then I'll explain. He tells us, and he shows us, that a right perspective will deliver us from a heart of revenge. If you have the right perspective, if you can cultivate the right mind frame, your heart and my heart can be delivered from a spirit of revenge. You're like, what do you mean by that? Well, let's come to Genesis 50. And when we come to Genesis 50, the structure of this chapter is really beautiful. There's two funerals. There's a funeral of Jacob, the patriarch, the father of Joseph, and he dies. And there's this whole process where he's buried. And then at the end of chapter 50, there's the burial and the funeral of Joseph himself. He dies and gives instruction to his sons of what to do with his bones. And in between those two funerals, sandwich, the real meat of the passage... The real meat of the chapter is when the brothers are imagining that maybe Joseph, now that Jacob is dead, he is going to take revenge on them. They're thinking maybe this idea that Joseph is okay with us isn't reality, but now that Jacob is dead, he wants to take revenge. And by the way, you and I might think the same thing. I mean, we're kind of wondering, you know, now that Jacob's dead and time is, maybe, maybe Joseph's been waiting for his, his moment. Maybe he's been waiting for his moment to strike back at his brothers. I mean, if my brothers threw me into a pit, if my brothers sold me into slavery, and, and, and they were the reason why I was, I was far, far away from my home, If my brothers did that, I might want to take revenge. I've got two big brothers. 
I might at least want to like give him a wedgie or something. But he doesn't do that. In fact, the meat, let me read the meat of the passage right in the middle of these two funerals. Look at Genesis 50, verse 15. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. By the way, we don't think that Jacob actually sent this message or told him this. We just think that they're so freaked out that they're trying to use Jacob to make sure that Joseph won't do anything to him. So verse 17, they quote Jacob as saying, Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is one of the great passages, and by the way, as we're finished, this is the last sermon. This is the last sermon on Genesis. Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> and this is a great statement and a summary of all that we've learned about in Genesis, which I'll get to in a little bit. But, we're, but we again marvel at this man, this gracious man, this sensitive man. Not only does he tell him, I'm not going to do anything to him, but he weeps and he shows expression and he shows this kindness and he, he almost gives them a hug. I mean, Joseph is, is so awesome, so spectacular that you and I, we look at him and he go, we go, what happened beforehand that prepared him for this moment? What in the world shaped this man so that he wouldn't take revenge in this moment and its perspective? And let me give you the first perspective that you've got to have. And if you have this perspective... It'll heal your heart of revenge. Number one, you need a correct cultural perspective. You need a correct cultural perspective. I see this jumping up when Joseph is preparing for the funeral of Jacob. Look at Genesis 50 and verse 1, and let me explain to you what I mean by this. It says in verse 1, Jacob is dead. It says, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph, now watch this, commanded his servants, the physicians, that is Egyptian physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Now, here's what's remarkable about this. What's remarkable is that Joseph has Jacob, his father, embalmed according to the Egyptian tradition. He has Egyptian physicians embalm his father, Jacob, in a physician way. 
He does almost everything in a way to where even Egypt itself spends time mourning the death of his father Jacob. And yet at the same time, he does not allow Egyptian physicians and religious priests to take his father into one of their pyramids or one of their tombs to where he's offered up to the gods of Egypt. He won't let that happen. In fact, he says, my father told me to bury him in the land of the promise of our God, Yahweh, the one creator God. Now you're like, how is that relevant to you and I? The reason why that's relevant to you and I is because you and I have to learn the art of our faith and have an imagination to where we can live in the world without being of the world. Does that make sense? We have to be able to live in American culture without completely withdrawing. And yet we can never compromise our convictions and what we believe and what God has revealed to us about life and reality. Jesus said that we are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're to live in the world without the world living in us. Joseph is like Daniel who lived in Babylon. And he learned to pray in a pagan society. Joseph is like Esther who lived in Persia for such a time as this. And she was able to live in that culture, look like that culture. In fact, Joseph did the same thing. Joseph is so Egyptian outwardly. He wears the Egyptian clothes. He's got the whole, you know, Egyptian thing. He's shaved, you know what I'm saying? He's all smooth skin and hopefully he didn't wear makeup. But you know what I'm saying. In fact, they look so Egyptian that when they take Jacob and bury him in Canaan, the Canaanites look at him and go, look at those Egyptians, so strange that they're here burying this old man. When they see Joseph in his entourage, they see Egyptians, but in Joseph's heart is a belief in the promises of God and is a solid conviction and uncompromising spirit when it comes to what God has revealed about life and reality. And I got to tell you, that is impressive. Everybody say impressive. This is a man who's lived in Egypt more than he ever lived in Canaan. This is a man who had power and money. And he was the second most powerful man in Egypt. And we're impressed because he never got so impressed with the culture of Egypt that he forgot the glorious God that created the heavens and the earth and the promises that God made. He said, I will never let culture eclipse the glory and the promises and the truth of God in my heart and my mind. And you say, what's that got to do with revenge? Like, you are totally off topic. Oh, no, I'm not. Because when the world begins to live in us, you know what it says? You're God. When the world lives in us, it says you can do whatever you want. When the world lives in you, it comes to you and says you've got rights. When the world comes to you and it lives in you and somebody does something wrong to you, the world says you need to fight back. You need to judge. You need to retaliate. You have, you're important. You're significant. Every day should be a Friday for you. And anybody that makes a Friday a Monday, you need to do something or say something or passively, aggressively attack somebody. You need to do something. And that's what the world does to us human beings. It makes us haters, not lovers. It makes us grabbers of Retaliation in our heart, not let goers, not surrendering. That's why John says in the New Testament, 
in 1 John. Get my little tabby. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and following. Listen to this. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. Joseph was surrounded by that. The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, I have to tell you, this is really extremely hard to do, isn't it? Because we can't withdraw. We can't just go, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm sick of what's happening in culture. I would, let me tell you something. Let me be honest with you. Can I be honest? You're like, you're a pastor. Please be honest. I went and saw that movie Zootopia with my children. And I got to tell you, the assault, the absolute assault on Christian values in our society, it's, there's no more hidden agendas, beloved. Everything you believe and that God's calling you to believe is being attacked in culture. And you know what I'm tempted to do? Take my precious little girls, go to the hills of Arkansas with canned food and some bullets, you know what I mean, and completely get away to create a bubble around my whole family so that they'll never be exposed. But here's the problem. You know what the problem is with us believers? We're sinners too, aren't we? So any bubble we create, we got sin inside of that bubble. You want to go up on a hill in Arkansas? You're going to take your own problems with you, aren't you? My daughters are nearly perfect. They're still sinners, you know. And here's the problem. God, Jesus said, I have you here for a purpose. Joseph, for such a time as this, you're going to live around pagans for all of your life. But you're going to have to hold on to your conviction. You're going to have to reach out to your culture without watering down what you believe. You're going to have to learn graciousness and truthfulness and boldness. And that takes the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to learn what are we called as Christians to reject from culture, no matter what. What are the essential things we have to reject? I would say thing, anything that assaults the glory of God and human life must be rejected. Can I get an amen? And if they put us in prison... Well, they put us in prison. You have to reject any idea around you that says that there's more than one way to God. There's only one way to God. That's Jesus. He said, I am the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And graciously, lovingly, we have to share that. Because if people don't believe that, then they are not going to live in eternity with God. They will be separated from God forever and ever in hell. And we are here to make sure nobody goes to hell that we know. Can I get an amen? You have to learn what to reject. The second thing is you have to learn what to receive. There are some things that don't have Jesus' name on it that are very good things that culture does. I've been to the Chicago Museum of Art, and it is awesome. It's filled with great art of people who never knew Jesus, and I can receive those things. I can receive good music. I can receive good, I can receive good movies. I can receive good artistic expression even if it doesn't have Jesus stamped all over it because there are things that human beings do that reflect that they are still made in the image of God even if they are not redeemed with God. I got to tell you, that's why I watch sports. You want to know why I watch sports? Because I marvel at physical abilities of some of these athletes and I think it points to the fact that there's a creator God. I look at Steph Curry and I go, that dude was made, that didn't happen by accident. Ain't no evolution do that. 
He's amazing. You can receive things in culture. You can enjoy things in culture. You can be just like your coworkers and enjoy the same things as them. And you don't have to totally withdraw. But here's the other thing. There are things that you have to redeem in culture. Thinking of things like Halloween and Christmas and Easter, you know. We have to tell our kids it's not about a stupid Easter bunny. Can I get an amen? Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus, not eggs. It's about the truth that Jesus died for our sins on a Friday. He defeated death on a Sunday. Halloween, it's hard to redeem Halloween, but we do it. Free candy, I'm dressing my kids up. They're going out and getting it. You know what I mean? In Jesus' name. And they're going to bring me some Twix, and they're going to bring me some Snickers, and that's just what we're going to do. But, you know, it takes prayer. It takes thoughtfulness. Y'all are going to have to open up your Bible and read it. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're, going to have, you're going to have to really be sensitive and really seek God because some of these things can't be outlined in a sermon. And the Bible doesn't tell us everything we're supposed to do. It gives us principles of life that we're to reflect on and use our imagination and our faith. And we're to be artistic in how we live out our life in a pagan culture. And we've got to do it with a heart that doesn't get overly angry, that doesn't retaliate, but continues to be gracious. And people say, what's different about you? What's different about me is that even though I'm living in Egypt, even though I'm living in a Babylon, I have a God who is with me everywhere I go, and I can live for him. And you know what happens when that begins to happen? You lose anger. You lose it. Joseph was believing in promises that God had. He wasn't worried about his brothers anymore. He wasn't, he wasn't overly impressed with his power. He wasn't overly impressed with his court. I am now second man to Pharaoh. He humbled himself before God. And he continued to believe in that. Listen, that's a cultural perspective that you're going to have to cultivate to make sure you don't have a heart of revenge. Because the world will make you very angry. The world will mess with you. Cultural perspective. Now that leads, secondly, to a theological perspective. You see, the right perspective can heal and transform a heart of revenge. And not only do we need a cultural perspective, we need a theological perspective to be non-retaliatory people, to be, uh, 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 to be non-violent, emotional people. And I'm not saying the- theology sounds sophisticated or scholarly or to make it feel like a seminary class. I just mean that theology is what do you believe about God? What is your belief about God? Joseph was a theologian, not because he went to seminary, but because he had lived in a pit. Joseph was a theologian and developed beliefs about God because he was sold into slavery. Joseph became a theologian because through the experiences and through dreams and through revelation, he discovered that God was providential and in control. Joseph developed a belief about God even out of the most difficult circumstances of his life. And the passage we read, when his brothers are there, and they're there, and they're they're quaking in their boots. They're quaking in their boots before Joseph. And Joseph makes one of the greatest theological statements of all time anywhere in the Bible. And he says two things about God that you have to say in all of your relationships. And here's the two things you got to say. Number one, God is the judge. God is the judge. You saw that in verse 19. Look at verse 19 again. His brothers fell down in verse 18, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
How significant is that? That little simple statement is not simplistic. Am I in the place of God? What's he saying? He said, am I the final judge? Am I the one that's supposed to right all the wrongs? Joseph understood that he was God's instrument, but never God's substitute. Joseph understood that his life would be righted not by himself. His life would be righted by God himself. And I got to tell you, man, in all, you're like, we've been studying Genesis. How many sermons do we preach on Genesis? I have no idea how many sermons I've preached on Genesis. I have, no, I have no idea how patiently you've endured Genesis in your life since you've been here at Crosspoint. I have no idea. But here's what I do know. You're like, what's, sum it all up. What is the message of Genesis? And the message is this. There is one God And you and I are not him. That's it. Am I in the place of God? Answer, no. What a freeing, wonderful idea. Amen. What a freeing, wonderful idea that I don't have to be God. I don't have to stress out about whether justice is going to be done. I don't have to stress out about righting all the evils in the world. I don't have to stress out about bringing the kingdom of God on earth. All I have to do is represent the kingdom of God on earth. I don't have to change the world or the culture or anything like that. I just get to represent the one who's going to be the judge over all people. And you know, human beings have come a long way in Genesis from the fall. Because as I remember it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, what did Adam and Eve try to do? They tried to erase the line between humans and deity. And Satan says, you can be God. Satan says, you can be like God. You can take the place of God. And here we have Joseph, who is not a fully restored, perfect human being, but he's a transformed human being in terms of beginning to understand, wait a minute, that original sin that resides in me that wants to be God? true am i in the place of god we're impressed by it i mean if joseph the most powerful most wealthy man outside of pharaoh in egypt can do that you and i can have the same perspective too can't we and that's what the bible says remember what paul said paul talked about this paul said in uh the book of romans He said in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Why? But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Remember how how Joseph said... I'm going to feed you. 
I'm going to give your children food. You're going to live well because I want to bless you. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Why? Because God will right all the wrongs. God will take care of it. This not only gives us uh, uh, some resources for deep abuse that's happened to us in our past. This gives us resources for those little things that become mountains in our heads and in our minds and our relationships, doesn't it? It doesn't matter as much anymore because we don't have to take the place of God. God is the judge. That's the first thing that he says theologically, and I encourage you to say the same thing, and it's hard. Sometimes you'll lay awake at night. Sometimes you'll have sleepless nights because of other people. That's a fallen world, man. That's a fallen world. That's, that is the consequence of brokenness. You're going to have sleepless nights because of what other people have said or because of what other people have done. But even in those sleepless nights, you can still confess over and over again on your bed, God is still God. And God is going to bring healing. God is going to right all wrongs. There is coming a time when God will right this wrong. God is the judge. The second thing Joseph says theologically is not only is God judge, but God is sovereign. God is in control. God is working all things out for good. He says here in Genesis 20 or 50, verse 20, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. Now, let me just stop there. Let me just stop there because I got to tell you that just because we're not to judge people to hell doesn't mean that we don't get to critique actions that are done to us in our life. And there's a balance. He still says what you did wasn't good. And sometimes those conversations need to happen, right? I mean, if, you, if you've been uh, abused or, 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 or if there's been a wrong in your relationship and you're capable of having a conversation with the person, you are allowed biblically to critique their actions and to say, I believe that what you did was evil. What you're not allowed to do is to condemn them to hell, to be the final judge, or to imagine that they're helpless or a lost cause. So I got to tell you that sometimes we need to have conversations if a major issue has happened and brought friction and separation of the relationship. You need to, according to Matthew 18, go and tell your brother what your offense is. Go and talk to your brother or your sister. Go and talk as spouses and talk with, with your children and all of those things. And you need to say there's right and wrong and I believe what you did is wrong. But Joseph says this, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He says that God, this is important, because if God is the judge, it's important to remember he's the sovereign judge, that he's in control. Nothing happens in reality or in history or in our life that doesn't pass through the sovereign hands of God. All things are working towards his will, his purposes. His purposes can't be thwarted. And when the enemy brings about evil, when human brings bring about sin, God is so phenomenally powerful, he can use even those for good and for his glory. And Joseph, all the horrible things that were done, all the abuse, what did God do? He used that for feeding a famished world with food so that people wouldn't starve to death. God works all things out for you. I think it's critical that you and I stop every now and then and go, there is nothing in our life that hasn't passed through the hands of God. And God can use all of that, even the worst stuff. 
You know, there are things that happened in Sherry's life that led her so that she would want to marry a short, vertically challenged little guy like me. There are things that if wouldn't happen to her, she would have married a tall, dark, handsome, wealthy businessman who's great, right? But God worked it out for my good. Her, her, her bad things that happened to her led her to say, I like him. I'll take that one because of him back there in my past. You know what I'm saying? And Now, does that mean that you can look at your past and say, oh, that's good? No, you still get to say it's evil. Things that have been done have been bad. They've been bad, bad, bad. They sh- those decisions shouldn't have been made by human beings. But God is so supreme and sovereign. And he has a plan, a predestined plan that's working for all people who believe in him. And he's working all things out in history. This is ultimately, obviously, it's seen in Joseph's life. But this is fulfilled and really the foundation for believing in the sovereignty of God in all things is in the very death of Jesus Christ. In the very death of Jesus Christ. And I put up the wrong slide, by the way. I don't know, Mike, are you running the slides? Don't do the Acts slide because I did the wrong verse. But Acts chapter 2 and, uh, and verse uh, 23, it says about Jesus' death, Peter says in the New Testament, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed By the hands of lawless men. In other words, the death of Jesus was according to the foreknowledge and the predestined plan of God. Or you could even even stronger, I do have a slide for this. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 27 and 28, Mike, I do have that. It says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, significantly, Jesus' death is according to the predestined plan of God. But that predestined plan of God worked through lawless men like Pontius Pilate, like King Herod. God allowed those things to happen so that you and I would have atonement through Jesus Christ. So that you and I would have forgiveness because Jesus died for us. And so ultimately the optic of the cross of Jesus Christ is not only about how great our forgiveness is. It's about how great God is. We are ultimately, because we're saved by grace through the death of Jesus, we're ultimately supposed to say God is supreme over all things. It glorifies his power and his glory. Somebody, a preacher once said this, it blew my mind. I think it was John Piper. Blew my mind. He said, was the death of Jesus about making much of you and me? Or was the death of Jesus about making much of God? And we say, That the death of Jesus is about making much of God. Joseph's deliverance was about making much of God. So that the Israelites who read that story of Joseph would have the courage, a courage of heart to go into a land of giants and face their battles. Face their life. Do the will of God because they knew that God was supreme. And let me tell you something. 
My dad used to teach a Sunday school class all the time. So for all of those of you who want a Sunday school class, call him up. He'll lobby for you. You know what I mean? But he used to teach a Sunday school class. He was a great Sunday school teacher, great Bible teacher. And he used to tell a Sunday school class all the time, if your problems are too big, your God is too small. We could use it in our context by saying, if your enemies have become too big in your heart, then your God is too small right now. You need to make much of God. And the bigger God becomes to your imagination, the more that you don't let the world and culture make God this little, itty-bitty, dumb, significant, marginalized little being. But the more you make him big and large and sovereign like Joseph, you can stand there and say, man, I got nothing against you anymore. God's used all of that stuff you did for my good, for your glory. God is sovereign, and God is the judge, and so I can let go of my offenses. I can let go of my grudges. You know what it means? It means that for those of us who right now are holding little grudges, little itty-bitty stupid grudges against other people that maybe we love or friends that we have, we are being childish in light of the glory of God. Let go of those little minor offenses. But for those of us who have very honest and sincere, big abuse issues, there's healing here. Because you can say, my God is working all things out for my good. You see, Joseph had a cultural perspective that healed his heart of revenge. Joseph had a theological perspective that healed his heart of revenge. And finally, Joseph had a gospel perspective that healed his heart of revenge. I point you just finally here. I point you to, again, verse 20. When he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, here's what I want to say. I see two things here. I see a picture of Jesus in our life, don't you? We're going to, listen, we're going to stand before Jesus and all those dumb little things we were bothered about, I promise you, in that moment are not going to amount to a hill of beans because the only thing that's going to be on our mind is we're in the hands of the living God who is the judge of our eternal salvation. We're going to stand before him. And what we believe, our assurance, listen to me, our assurance is that in that moment of judgment, in that moment of standing before God when the filing cabinet of all of our sins and all of our life is laid bare before him, our confession is that when Jesus died for our sins, he paid the full price for our sins. He paid everything so that nothing is left. We won't have to be worried at all in that moment because we know that Jesus will look at us and said, I fed you when you were hungry even though you didn't deserve it. I gave you bread enough to spare. I am the bread of life and whoever believes in me will never go hungry again. I am the living water of eternal life and you'll never thirst again. And he will welcome us into his kingdom at that moment. He will welcome us into his family and into his mansion. Can I get an amen? Jesus said, do not fear, believe in God and believe also in me. And I go to prepare a place for you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And the only question for you and I is, are we willing to receive in empty hands this good news that Jesus did that in our place as our substitute? 
I see a picture of Jesus and Joseph in this moment. I see a picture of what it's going to be like for you and I as the brothers who stand before him. And he's going to offer us forgiveness. It is a confession of the gospel. But I also see here in Joseph a call to action. A call to embody. Joseph, at the end of the day, was not Jesus. And Joseph realized he was forgiven and that what made him right was God's covenant through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph realized he got that by grace. And what he's doing is he's embodying and reenacting in his brother's life the gospel of Jesus Christ. Joseph had a gospel perspective that held loosely, held very loose, not tightly, loosely his grievances. And he was willing to let it go because he knew that God had let go of his grievances. And Joseph was even, listen, not only, check this out, I'm almost done. Not only, not only was he able to say, you know what, I'm not going to judge you. By the way, the measure of a heart that's not filled with revenge is not, I'm not going to retaliate. The measure of a heart that doesn't have revenge in it is not only I'm not going to do something negative, I'm going to do something positive. I'm going to hug you. I'm going to practice kindness. I'm going to be humble before God, love kindness, and do justice in light of the gospel in your life. Like Micah 6.8 says, what does God require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. He reenacts the gospel in a positive way. That's, way. that's how you know the measure of your heart lacking revenge is, can you do something positive for the very person that's in your imagination that drives you nuts? You're like, hang on, man, man, time out. Whoa, 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 whoa. Because you don't know what's been done to me. You don't know who that person is. You're telling me to go do something positive? And I recognize that there are some people that you can never go talk to again. I realize that. But you can still do something positive for them. Jesus said you can pray for your enemies. You can say, God... This person did horrible things to me. Help them. For others of us, to walk in a gospel perspective means we can have a conversation, if we can. Those situations where a conversation is required and you're able to do it, you can have that conversation. For others of us, you just need to drop it. So imagine it. Pray. Gospel perspective allows you to pray. It allows you to talk. It gives you permission in some cases to drop. Everybody say drop it. Drop it. You can drop it. You can forgive because you're forgiven. I'm not saying that a sermon or one moment is going to heal all the wounds or make it all go away. But you can begin to grow in this gospel perspective. You can begin to let it go. You can begin to drop it, and it won't impact or influence you anymore. You see, the right perspective can heal a heart of revenge, and all of Genesis helps us. It tells us at the end, it tells us, you're very important. You know, Genesis says you're very important. 
You're made in the image of God. You're made to employ uh, the Holy Spirit of God. You're made to live on earth for divine purposes. You're very important in terms of how you decide to have relationships. You're very important because you're supposed to be in marriage, a man and a woman married together. Multiply, fill the earth was the creation mandate. Uh, be a blessing to the families of the earth with the, with the covenant of grace is the Abrahamic mandate and the covenant mandate. This creation mandate and the covenant mandate of Genesis coming together, forgiving us, healing us, from original sin and moving us forward to be his people. We are very important according to Genesis, but we're not that important. Genesis reminds us that God is still God and that we're to be humble before him. And we're not to imagine that our importance allows us to be the final judge. This perspective, cultural, theological, gospel perspective, can heal our hearts of revenge. Let us pray.